0: This is Positive Parenting, parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, the founder of MrDad.com. Our children's first digital footprints are made before they can walk, even before they're born. As parents use fertility apps to aid conception, post ultrasound images, and share their baby's hospital mugshots, then in rapid succession come terabytes of baby pictures stored on the cloud, digital baby monitors with built-in artificial intelligence, and real-time updates from daycare. When school starts, there are cafeteria cards that catalog food purchases, bus passes that track when kids are on and off the bus, electronic health records in the nurse's office, and a school surveillance system that has eyes everywhere. Unwittingly, parents, teachers, and other trusted adults are compiling digital dossiers for children that could be available to everyone, friends, employers, law enforcement, forever. In this part of today's show, we're going to be examining the implications of Sharenthood, adults' excessive digital sharing of children's data. We're going to be outlining the mistakes that adults make with kids' private information, the risks and the results, and the legal system that enables sharenting. I'm Armin Bratt. We'll start talking about why we should think more before we talk about our kids online and how we can get the internet to forget and us to remember when Positive Parenting continues right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Bratt. after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. Son, we got to talk about drinking. I know. I don't want you touching alcohol till you're old enough. Yeah, I, I know, Dad. It's not a big deal. Don't, yeah, I know me, okay? And it is a big deal. Underage drinking is just stupid. Yeah, well, why'd you do it? Look, I did it because we didn't know what we know now. Alcohol affects kids differently, okay? When kids drink, it's more dangerous. And you're my kid. And just because they drink doesn't mean you have to. I, I know. I know. Look, son, I'm trying to help. I've seen what it does. I mean, you may think you can handle it, but when you drink, it screws up your judgment. Listen to me. This is real. I I know, okay? I know. Teenagers know everything. So talk about underage drinking before they know it all. Before they're teens. Start talking before they start drinking. And keep talking. To learn more about the dangers of underage drinking and what to say to your kids, go to StopAlcoholAbuse.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back with po- to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Leah Plunkett, who is the author of Sharenthood, Why We Should Think Before We Talk About Our Kids Online. Leah, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Let's talk about the progression of how we got where we are with parents putting every single possible thing that their kids have ever done or not even done yet. I mean, it was, you know, with my kids, it wasn't such a big deal. You, We, we, we got a, an ultrasound picture, you put it up on the refrigerator. But now you can, you can get 3D videos or 4D videos, you can put them up, you've got, I mean, just an unbelievable amount of stuff. Where are we with sharing stuff about our kids?
1: We are in a space where there are really no boundaries between the life that we think privately in our homes and our doctors' offices, in our schools, and the life that we are broadcasting everywhere, whether it's on social media. So putting that ultrasound picture up on Facebook rather than on your fridge, or even before you might get an ultrasound picture, but you might be using a fertility tracking bracelet or fertility app, and you are putting preconception data, about your future children into a digital device and service and that digital data can be aggregated, analyzed, transmitted and acted upon both by the company that's receiving it but also by data brokers and really countless downstream third parties that might use it to discern information or make predictions about your children well into the future.
0: It sounds like what you're talking about is more that you have an objection to the commercialization of the data and the images and stuff like that, as opposed to the potential privacy issue that the kids themselves might raise about how could you possibly post this about me online without asking my permission.
1: Thank you for differentiating between those. I object to both. I object to the ways in which we are... Taking our children's private lives, and I do think privacy, broadly speaking, should be understood as a zone for self-creation, for exploration, so for making mischief and making mistakes and growing up better for having made them. I object to our taking that away from our kids by documenting... Almost every aspect of it and sharing it with people in their social network or beyond, as well as sharing it with institutions. In terms of sharing it with institutions, I do focus my objections on the potential for commercialization, but I would also object equally to a government actor or a non-profit actor getting that data and using it in ways to make predictions or decisions about children's future Mm -hmm. opportunities.
0: Let's stay with the privacy aspect for a little bit, because I think that's something that I think a lot of us probably who have read the newspapers or who have kids, and I've got uh, my youngest ones in high school, so I'm still thinking about high school things. But you know we know that there are that kids have limited privacy rights that they can't keep anything they want in their locker that schools have a, a right to to images of kids and things like that so how how do we decide what rights kids have as opposed to what rights parents have to post whatever they want
1: we need to do a much better job of that than we do Currently, kids have essentially no legal rights to privacy that can be asserted against their parents' choices. Of course, if a parent's choice involves privacy violations that were criminal or illegal under a law like abuse and neglect statutes. So you can't abuse or neglect your child, heaven forbid, take pictures of it and put those online and say that the abuse and neglect is okay because you were just creating images to share. That would not work. But we don't have the ability for children of any age, up until they attain the age of majority, to say to their parents, you can't take this picture of me in my diaper. You can't take this picture of me in my prom dress. You can't tell the world on Twitter that I got a great SAT score or that I got a horrible SAT score. And I don't think we are anywhere close to a legal or regulatory regime that Mm -hmm. will address that for us. I think that we as parents. And I'm the parent of two kids, sounds like a little younger than yours, and I think about this for my own family at the level of values. What sort of values do I want in my household, and how do I as a parent, together with my husband, implement those values? Because the law really does let me and my husband choose.
0: Well, where do you think that we should come down? I mean, trying to come up with some sort of a— A nationwide legal definition of privacy and where the line is and and what you're allowed I think would be an an incredible nightmare and is probably gonna cause more problems than it solves it it really does sound like it's got to be something that needs to be worked out but how do you decide when you're talking about images of a child who's too young to make a decision
1: I would encourage parents to think about four main values the values of play so setting up private kids can explore, forgetting, connecting, and respecting. And those values, if they're operationalized thoughtfully, can go a long way toward helping parents think, gee, what is the benefit that I get here? Am I forging a better connection with or on behalf of my child if I rant about my child's temper tantrum on Facebook? Probably not. But to carry out sort of the implementation of the value of connecting, am I forging a better relationship with my child or on behalf of my child if I get an educational technology app that helps teach my child how to speak Hebrew? Maybe I am. And in that case, the kind of sharing the transmission of kids' private digital data, may well be worth it.
0: I'm wondering if it works the other way as well in in the way that you're thinking about these things and i just was was reminded of a i guess an event that happened in my one of my o- older kids lives when she was in high school she wrote a poem and performed it and it had to do with me and mm, and i remember i remember talking to her afterwards cuz she didn't tell me that she was going to perform it i i saw it in in print someplace else and i said you really need to be talking to me before you tell some story of mine in front of a bunch of people. I have a right to know that. And she said, you can't tell me what I can do with my art. And and I was just wondering, I was just wondering, I I do do a lot of blogging, and so fast forward to say 10 years or so, my youngest daughter and I were in a car accident, and Mm. I happened to... After I got out of the ambulance, take a picture of her being taken out of the ambulance also, which I put up on my my Facebook account. And I don't think that she even knew about that for probably five or six years. And she found it online and she was very upset that I had posted that. And I thought, you know, she's absolutely right. I didn't ask her because she was seven or six or something and she didn't know anything. But then I thought, well, wait, if I'm if I'm a blogger, that's my art. So where where do we where do we draw the line with these things and, and does it work work both ways?
1: I love that question. I think it should work both ways. And I actually think many schools are starting to talk to our kids younger and younger about digital privacy specifically, but also digital citizenship. In fact, Washington State passed the law in twenty sixteen that requires digital citizenship instruction in primary and secondary public schools. So I think our kids may wind up thinking and developing even more approaches here than we do as adults. Uh, So we may be able to learn a lot from them. I do think it should cut both ways. In terms of that question of how to draw the line between the personal and the artistic, or maybe I should say the private and the artistic, or the private and the political, I've been involved for many years in nonprofit board service, including with Planned Parenthood, which is an organization where this idea of your personal path to power and your journey is you know, involves often a lot of private soul-searching, and so I do think that we need, we cannot be sanitized, and we can't disconnect ourselves from our experiences and how they shape us, but I do think that there's room for all of us, whether we are a kid, a parent, a blogger, a painter, an activist, to be having values-based discussions, and even with the people closest to us, maybe coming up with values-based agreements. And I don't mean Mm -hmm. you have to write it down and sign it and notarize it, but I mean kind of rules of thumb of, I'll ask you before I post a picture, or I will check in with you before I engage in political speech that talks about our family. I do think that there's a way to have those conversations that is healthy but ultimately generative of art, writing, political discourse, and all those other forms of collective expression
0: talking with Leah Plunkett, who's the author of Sharenthood. And we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Leah. I'm Armand Brott, and you're listening to Positive Parenting.
2: Your kids are going for a bike ride. You make sure they wear a helmet. They insist on skateboarding, add knee pads and elbow pads too. Swimming in the pool, water wings, goggles, earplugs. If we could pack our kids in bubble wrap, we'd do it because we love them and we want to protect them. This is Lisa Edelstein with some very important news. Now there's an easy way to protect your kids three times a day. Choose healthy foods. Research has shown that a vegetarian diet rich in fruits, vegetables, and whole grains can help protect our kids against obesity. It can even help keep them from developing heart disease or cancer when they grow up. My friends at The Cancer Project are just waiting to hear from you so they can send you important information on how to protect your children from the inside out. Just log on to cancerproject.org or call 866 906 WELL. That's 866 906 WELL. This message brought to you by The Cancer Project. Hands can
3: do incredible things. This is the sound of 326 hands playing Mozart. This is the sound of 10,942 hands showing appreciation. 64 hands building a house for the homeless. 142 hands swimming a triathlon. 18 hands winning the big game. And this is the sound of two hands helping to save a life. It's called Hands Only CPR, and it's recommended by the American Heart Association. If an adult suddenly collapses, call 911 then push hard and fast in the center of their chest until help arrives. It's incredibly easy and effective. Hands can do incredible things, but nothing compares to using them to help save a life. Find out more about this latest method of CPR at handsonlycpr.org. A message from the American Heart Association and the Ad Council. Welcome back to
0: Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Broder, If you're just joining us talking with Leah Plunkett, who's the author of Sharonhood, Why We Should Think Before We Talk About Our Kids Online. So, Willie, we talked a little bit about the the privacy aspects and the conversations we need to be having with our kids and coming up with something which I think is going to be, again, as I mentioned earlier, a, a discussion that's going to have to happen on a unique basis in every family because people are going to draw the lines in different places. Would you agree with that?
1: I would agree with that. I think that for every family, having a digital privacy discussion or even a formal digital privacy plan with a few rules of the road is absolutely necessary.
0: And what do you do in a situation where a child discovers something that he or she didn't want or decides now would like it not to be there? We don't have the kinds of laws that I know that they've got in, in European countries and maybe the EU as a whole about the right to forget and, and the ability to take things down. In, in this country, it seems like things just last forever. Is there a way? Do, does anybody have recourse if there's something there that uh, on second thought you've decided really shouldn't be?
1: You're absolutely right. We don't have any sort of federal law that gives us a right to be forgotten or a right to erase So we are left dealing with a case-by-case context. And so for anyone who's had something either that they may have consented to or, or not consented to, I think that the first recourse is to go to that platform or that provider and follow their procedures for requesting deletion or correction. Now, depending on the specific context in which the information is shared about a child, there may be additional levels of legal protection. I'm thinking mostly about education. There are federal and state laws that deal with youth privacy in the education context that do give kids, as asserted through their parents if they're under 18, greater protections around accessing data and requesting correction or deletion if it's something that a school system or district has shared. So if it's in an education context, there may be more protection. And I always remind people, if there's something out there that you really feel is deeply damaging and you're just not getting anywhere with a particular provider or platform, do not underestimate the power of a good litigator, even without a comprehensive federal privacy law for use or a comprehensive federal legal right to be forgotten. A creative and zealous litigator, even sometimes just by writing a letter and using some old-fashioned causes of action, can get a company to move, in part because they may not want to deal with the hassle.
0: Okay. So let's switch gears and talk about the the commercialization part, I think, which is something that probably not a lot of people think about, is you're talking about using the images to, do, to make predictive decisions about the kinds of products that you should be offered, about maybe where your child might be a likely candidate to go to school, or who knows what else that people could come up with, depending on the various algorithms that are out there. And, and companies are going to be somewhat less swayed, maybe, uh, by getting a letter from a litigator. How do you, how do you regulate, it, or can you even, what can be done with the images and the data you post?
1: This is an area where I think we do need a comprehensive new federal use digital privacy law that directly regulates tech companies and limit their ability to extract, use, share, and take other actions with private information they get about children. Because I think under our current system, which is relying on parents, and in some cases kids, but mostly parents, to accept terms and conditions of use, privacy policies, and other click wrap agreements that no one really reads, and even if you did read them, good luck understanding what they actually mean because they really always have some sort of get out of jail free language for the provider which says and we can use this data in any other way we choose or to improve Mm. your user experience or to offer you (laughs) new products and so unless we come up with comprehensive nationwide legal response to say look companies when you get images of children or data about children or you extract data from the images, you cannot use it for anything other than a specific purpose that a parent has clearly and in a limited way opted into. For instance, what comes to mind for me is the big article in the New York Times just about a week ago that talked about how images from social media of kids have been used to power facial recognition software, so surveillance technology. And that article details how images of toddlers from 2005 have been on the front lines of training this essentially spy product. And that there's no way for any individual parent to know that and prevent it. So that's where we need comprehensive law reform.
0: Well, in the absence of that, what do you suggest that people do? Because, I mean, there's, there's really nothing right now that we can do. There's no recourse, right?
1: I would suggest that parents and grandparents, teachers and so on, never post any pictures of kids who are not fully dressed. Even if it's an innocent picture, it can be tempting for the wrongdoers out there who can use Photoshop and other technologies to manufacture pornographic images of youth. I suggest that parents avoid using surveillance or tracking technologies on their kids and teens unless they are absolutely necessary and there's no alternative. I advise parents to stay away from using sensor-enabled or Internet of Things devices like smart the diapers that measure urine output of infants and collect that very intimate data, again, unless there might be a medical reason that you would need to track that level of specificity. And I encourage all parents to adopt low-tech or no-tech approaches to things. For instance, if you want to, I talked earlier about, you know, feeling like you might want to rant about your toddler's tantrum, something that may or may not be close to home for me, a low-tech way of doing that is for me to text my best friend from college. That's still sharing. I'm still using a digital device to capture information about my child and put it out into the world, but it's a much lower-risk way of doing it because unless a phone is, is hacked or... Um, my friend, which she would never do, takes a screenshot of the text and shares it. That is a lot more private than posting that same rant on Facebook or Twitter. So those are some things that parents can do in the course of daily life that really should not limit their opportunities too much but could make some nice protective difference for their kids.
0: What do you think is the downside for the kids? Because I, I wonder, I mean, you're, you're a lawyer, and you you teach at, at a law school, so you probably think about this thing. I don't know if you're on anybody's short list to be a Supreme Court nominee, but at some at some point, <laughs> at, at some point so. some of our kids, <laughs> the, the listeners of some of the uh, people who are or the kids of the listeners are, right now, uh, you know, they may be. And somebody could, I could imagine this t- 10, 15 years from now, somebody dragging through and saying, look, your parents posted this picture about you when you were two years old and we don't want to have you on the Supreme Court. I mean it's the, the the ramifications seem just unimaginable i mean literally unimaginable that we just cannot imagine them
1: One of the things that the New York Times said in that facial recognition piece I just mentioned, they said somewhat rhetorically, who would have predicted, I'm paraphrasing here slightly, but who would have predicted a decade and a half ago that images of toddlers would be used to train surveillance technology? The answer is, at that point, really no one was. The answer for now is, we should all expect that information about our kids is being used and will be used in ways that we cannot anticipate or control that can have real implications for their futures, like the potential Supreme Court nominee who gets side swiped by something that a parent shares or that same nominee who maybe even heaven forbid gets rejected from law school before they can even become a potential supreme court nominee because some sort of predictive algorithm aggregated data about them and decided they would not be a good candidate for law school and we're not quite to that latter scenario yet but we're not that far away so this is a perfect time for all of us to be taking stock yeah. limiting what we can in terms of the sharenting in our own life so that our kids are not overexposed and also working as much as possible toward collective solutions based.
0: Leah Plunkett's the author of Sharenthood, Why We Should Think Before We Talk About Our Kids Online. Leah, thank you very much. It was great to have you.
1: It was wonderful to be here.
2: of <laughs> You must be your fairy godmother. It <laughs> yes.
3: It doesn't take a fairy godmother to tell you that the right fit means everything. Good
1: heavens, child. You can't go in that.
3: Children under four foot nine need to be in a booster seat because they aren't ready for adult safety belts alone. Many parents miss the important step of booster seats. Maybe you better explain things to him. Booster seats raise your child up so that a safety belt designed for adults will fit and protect them properly. Oh, that does make a difference. Remember that four foot nine is the magic number. And get your little pumpkin there safely <laughs> in a booster seat. Hop in, my dear. Oh, thank you. And like Cinderella, you can live happily ever after. It's like a dream, a wonderful dream come true. For more information, visit boosterseat.gov. This has been a message from the U.S. Department of Transportation and the Ad Council.
0: Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brant, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment, this one on one of my favorite topics, reading with kids. Dear Mr. Dad, My 10-year-old son is quite smart and perfectly capable of reading, but it's always been a challenge for him. And unfortunately, his teachers aren't doing very much to help the situation other than send home notes and report cards saying that he's reading below his grade level. My wife and I both read a lot, and we've tried encouraging him in all sorts of ways, but nothing seems to work. How can we help our son become a better and more frequent reader? It's sometimes hard for those of us who love books to understand that reading doesn't come naturally or easily to everyone. But the fact is that a lot of children, even smart ones who have plenty of good role models around, struggle with reading. However, because so many factors, including learning disabilities, not being ready, or simple lack of interest, can cause reading problems... Overcoming them can be sometimes a frustrating process for everyone. That said, here are a few things you can do to help. Read to him and have him read to you. Reading to a 10-year-old might sound odd to some people, in part because we have a tendency to associate bedtime stories with little kids. But novels, movies, and plays are stories too, and humans have been telling stories around campfires for thousands of years. So I suggest that you grab one of the books you loved when you were your son's age and read it to him, or take turns reading it to each other. If he stumbles, be patient and don't judge. Make reading a regular part of the nighttime routine, even if you need to extend his bedtime by 20 minutes or so. Just make sure you pick something that will hold your son's and your attention. Don't be pushy. It's natural to want to share the books we love with others, But just because you're a mystery fan, a steampunk aficionado, or read-only history and other nonfiction, doesn't mean your son will be remotely interested in any of those things. In fact, if you've been pushing your tastes on your son, you may have inadvertently contributed to his reading problems instead of helping resolve them. Don't be a snob. Most kids love movies. Did your son like The Fault in Our Stars or Maze Runner? How about Hugo, Ready Player One? or Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, or Ender's Game. And let's not forget about series such as Harry Potter, The Hunger Games, and Percy Jackson. All are based on books. Starting with something your son is already interested in could help draw him into reading. And don't rule out graphic novels. If your goal is to get your son interested in reading and improve his skills, what he's reading is less important than how much time he spends doing it. Get his vision checked. A lot of kids have trouble reading because they can't make out what's on the page. Vision problems can make reading not only a chore, but also a physically painful experience. The answer could be as simple as getting glasses or, if he already wears them, getting a new prescription. Celebrate small steps. Kids who have trouble reading often feel that there's something wrong with them. Getting made fun of and being called names by their peers only makes things worse. The natural reaction is to avoid reading. So... Work with your son to come up with manageable goals. Say, finish a 200-page book in a month. And make a big deal every time he accomplishes one of those goals. With time, gradually make the goals more challenging.